Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Rob Manning will join us to discuss Mars Rover Curiosity. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Rock's Science Show. Well, of all the planets in the solar system, Mars has seen some of the most dramatic projects to characterize its environment. The several rovers that have landed on it, most recently Curiosity, have opened new windows to exploring the red planet. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Rob Manning. Mr. Manning has worked at NASA and Caltech's Jet Propulsion Laboratory for more than 30 years, and he now leads the engineering for the Mars Program Office and is the chief engineer on a project to develop technologies for landing even larger robotic vehicles on Mars, with the hopes of eventually landing future astronauts and scientists there. He has penned the book, Mars Rover Curiosity, an inside account from Curiosity's chief engineer. And uh, Mr. Manning, we want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you very much. It's really exciting to be here. It's really a pleasure to have you on the program. It's certainly a fascinating book you've written, Mars Rover Curiosity. Would you talk about the inside scoop on development of Curiosity and how it came to fruition despite some of the criticisms during its development? Uh, I'm curious, maybe first to, to start, how did you become involved with uh, NASA JPL? Well, I, I was a stu- like you, I was a student at Caltech and, and as an undergraduate. And uh, as I was uh, working on my senior year, I was able to get an academic part-time job as a draftsman and a technician at JPL because they, they weren't interested in getting engineers. They wanted people who can keep the humidifiers full or people can work on uh, vellum and drawings and, and do, uh, do draftsman, draftsman kind of work. So I said, hey, this is great. I, I, I'm going to be close to pe- the people who actually make spacecraft that go to outer planets. That'd be so cool. So uh, from there, I got my foot in the door and been, I'm never, I haven't looked back yet. It's been great. And through your uh, career there, you, you became involved with the Mars projects. I'm curious, how did that, that come about? Well, it started, interesting enough, uh, uh, although there were some attempts to do uh, Mars orbiters, for example, Mars Observer in the 80s and early 90s, um, which didn't go so well. But really, Mars, there was, Mars, there was, a, there was a period of, of 20 years where there was very little exploration of Mars, and virtually no exploration of Mars after the Viking landers and orbiters arrived in 1976. And so, in fact, the idea of sending something back to the surface of Mars was, was, was actually sort of abhorrent a because the, the costs appeared to be outside of NASA's dwindling budgets. And so it wasn't until early 90s when some of my compadres at JPL, we, we took an idea that NASA Ames Research Center actually had started, and we kind of ran with it, which is to uh, come up with a really low-cost landing system and to try out a new way of doing a Mars mission that was really inexpensive, you know, almost an order of magnitude cheaper than the previous Mars mission. So for about the cost of a expensive major motion picture, we were able to put together a Mars Pathfinder and little Sojourner rover that bounced on the surface of Mars in, on the 4th of July, 1997. And it was, I got involved because 
another Caltech, the name of uh, Brian Muirhead, came to me and says, hey, I need, I'm looking for somebody who knows a lot about computers and software and electronics for spacecraft. And I have been doing that for uh, about 15 years. And he said, can you help me? I said, sure. And so he asked me. I became uh, his chief engineer, focused really on the innards of this vehicle. And what happened was, over time, I realized we needed a, a real strong focus on entry descent landing. And I crazily volunteered to lead the entry descent landing team. And from there, it was just an amazing set of experiences, learning about how to do build airbags, how to use, how to build heat shields, how to make parachutes, how to use pyrotechnic explosives to do your bidding for you, so the a vehicle can address itself and how to deal with this very unknown Mars surface that we're aiming for on Aris Valles, which is a, a outflow of a major catastrophic out, outflow on Mars, an area that we really didn't have a lot of data on. In fact, just a, some fairly large-scale images without a lot of resolution. So we were aiming for a place we really didn't know anything about until we got there. So it was, it was just a challenge. You had to design uh, something that had to meet uh, unknown environment in a way. Yes, in fact, we still struggle with that. But yes, we're, it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, we really need to know what Mars is like for we can, so we can design reliable vehicles to go there. Yet we're going there to find out what it's like. And so this has been a real problem. Um, in fact, this is a problem that has recently haunted us on Curiosity recently with its wheels. Uh, but but the that was certainly true then. And so we just try to use our imaginations and try to take what we had from the two Viking missions as well as the orbital data. And we try to get as much as we could from images like from Hubble, taking pictures of, of Mars. We would actually use the Arecibo radio observatory in Puerto Rico and, and aim radio signals and bounce it off Mars to see roughly whether or not we would land in a place that might be so dusty that the vehicle would plunk into a big pile of foo-foo dust. And so we, we try to do every trick we in the book we could to figure out what, what our landing site might be like. But even then, it, it, was, it was still an approximation. But we, did, we guessed enough and we made the system beefy enough that it can handle the conditions. And I'm very glad it did because the conditions actually turned out to be even worse than I expected once we got there. But Curiosity is going, and uh, as I understand it, the, uh, the mission has been extended indefinitely beyond its uh, initial two-year uh, planned mission. Yes, and we're very excited about that. Um, it, it, Curiosity is a culmination of a lot of stuff. And starting, you know, going from the Viking missions to Pathfinder, Spirit and Opportunity. That was I was deeply involved in those two missions as well. Um, and we've layered all this, all these lessons to build up this fantastically complicated machine. And I, I don't know whether to be proud of the complexity or embarrassed by it because it's it's really a difficult machine to get to know and to be and to operate super efficiently. But on the other hand, its its capabilities are just so amazing. It's got two laboratories inside. Uh, one can do mass spectroscopy and gas chromatograph, uh, and another one has a uh, X-ray diffraction, basically doing crystallography of minerals right on board the vehicle as we can drive around. Plus, there's other many other instruments on board. We have a basically a divining rod, an instrument made by the Russians that sends uh, neutrons down and can actually detect hydrogen below the surface of Mars, hydrogen as, H, as, as an H2O uh, as we're driving along. We've got a laser on board that can shoot rocks at a distance, and by the flash of the light that comes off, a little tiny bright light that flashes back from the laser beam, basically cooking the rock, that from that color, from those colors, we can deduce the elemental compositions of the rock from a distance. And we can also do the same thing with a special instrument at the end of the arm. We have a microscopic camera on the end of the arm that, 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 that can really look close up at rocks as well as these, take these wonderful selfies of the rover. Uh, uh, we have a wind instrument from Spain, 
an, in, an instrument that actually, it's part of the laser mission, we, we can actually look at, at our samples from a distance and look at it very carefully with a nice spectral camera as part of the KenCam instrument. We also, that goes with the laser, but we also have this wonderful telescopic long-range color camera and a wider-angle color camera that can produce very rich bit of color spectra of the images of the, uh, and take beautiful color pictures of the area around where we're exploring. So altogether, this has been a really a, the most amazing Swiss Army knife I've ever worked on. We're very proud of the fact that it's able to do so much. But the same flip, side, flip side of it, it's with so many things in it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of people to, to make sure that this thing continues to rock and roll with Surface of Mars. Uh, it's, it's an amazing uh, machine. I think there are uh, some physical chemistry departments that are be pretty envious of having uh, any one of those pieces of equipment. <laughs> They're very cool. And, 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 and you can imagine trying to take these you know, high-end laboratory uh, instruments and shrink them down to fit inside this rover. I and mean, one of the reasons this rover is so much bigger, uh, Spirit and Opportunity rovers, is because it has these laboratories that, and its supporting infrastructure, including the, a drill on the end of the arm, that can do this kind of laboratory work that's never been done before over on a, on a mobile platform on the surface of Mars. It's, it's really cool. Uh, so given the, the really the complexity of Curiosity compared to its predecessors, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced in putting this thing together? And was there ever a question of whether it would come together? Yeah, oh, there was indeed. <laughs> um, we were actually given the go in um, around the, the, the real big thumbs up around 2004, 2005. And, so we were help, hoping to launch in the 2009 launch opportunity. As many of your listeners know, you can't leave Earth from Mars anytime you want. The opportunity to launch to Mars occurs about every 26 months. And because, because you, you, can launch, you can go to Mars orbit anytime you like, but Mars may not be there when you get there. So the trick is, is having to wait. The, and, that, and that window that occurs every 26 months is only about two or three weeks long. So you really can't be late. And unfortunately, and by 2008, we realized that this machine, all the different pieces, including its new landing system, everything, we were all trying to get it all done by the 2009 launch. And by, two, by late 2008, we concluded there's just no way we're going to get there from here. So, so about a year before the planned launch, we announced to the world and to our sponsors at headquarters NASA headquarters that no, we weren't going to make it, and we were. It was very depressing because we really pushed hard to get it to get that to work. It, but it was just it was just just too daunting, and we were we were just confronted by too many details and things that had to get worked and tested and, run, and built right. And one year was not enough. And so NASA, much to our relief, uh, looked at what we had to do and said, "Okay, well, go ahead and get it done." We'll pay you extra money for the extra time to get all that testing done before we launched. And, and I'm very grateful because we really needed every, every, every minute of that time to get ready. And so when we launched finally in November in 2011, we were ready. And no, interesting, if we were ready to launch, we still weren't ready to land or do science because we were still developing the entry descent landing software. While we were on a wait, we, we had, a, we had a, uh, about an eight, nine-month cruise to Mars, and we used those months to get the rest of the system working. And found we actually finally uploaded the finally correct entry sent landing software about a month before arrival. And then we had to do another upload to convert the rover from being a vehicle with specializing in flying across the, the solar system and doing this entry descent landing thing, which it has to do on its own 
uh, and to becoming a rover that can do science. Uh, so we had to do some kind of a lobotomy on the software just literally just a couple of weeks after we landed on Mars. It must have made that uh, landing a little bit tense. <laughs> well, it did. I mean, we we put the priorities in the right place. I mean, we said, listen, you know, you know, our, the number one thing is get this vehicle safely to the surface of Mars. And this vehicle, like unlike other Mars landers, had extra things it had to learn how to do. Fair an opportunity, all they had to do is is to time the events that that it needed to do with some precision, like opening the parachute. Firing some three solid rocket motors and inflating airbags uh, about three three and a half seconds from from touchdown at the last instant, and then cutting it cutting the airbags loose until to allow the system to bounce. So it was actually an interesting landing, even it had these mechanical complexities of an airbag and and rockets. It was actually pretty relatively simple. Now this vehicle in the hand, because we couldn't use airbags, it was just too big of a vehicle to get airbags to work reliable, reliably. As, as far as we could tell, we, we may be still wrong about that, but 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 we just we just felt that was just too daunting. We had to come up with this new technique to deliver this rover to the surface of Mars. In the process, we had to put more complexity in this vehicle. This vehicle has to, in order to get it to land at the foot of this mountain, in this still inside this mountain called Mount Sharp, in, in, on the floor of this. 80-some-kilometer crater, we had to teach this rover how to steer itself to Mars. It's put a center of mass offset in the, in, on the vehicle, and so it was able to steer a left and right, much like the space shuttle does, and to guide itself more carefully into the center of this, uh, in this flat area inside the northern part of this giant crater, um, which we did. So we had to, the rover had to know how to do that, and so the rover's doing that. And then the rover also has to be a parachutist to properly deploy the supersonic parachute at just the right time. And it had to be a helicopter pilot and, and lower itself carefully at ultra slow speed onto its wheels using a rocket propelled helicopter. We call the descent stage in what we call the sky crane maneuver. So there's a lot of things we had, a lot of stuff we had to stuff into that little rover, not so little rover, big rover to get it to land safely on Mars. And then once it was on the surface of Mars, it didn't need any all that stuff anymore. And so we could over, we could basically erase all that software and put in a whole new package of software, which was exactly what we did. Do you think uh, you're going to employ this method of landing for future rovers, or is it, is it sort of a trade-off depending upon the size of a uh, vehicle you're sending to Mars? It might depend on the size. I have to admit, um, since we know, we've really learned a lot from doing this the first I think this approach for landing is this by far the safest way to land. When you think about these these airbag landers, um, one of the reasons you've got to put airbags around the whole thing is because you're not really controlling the speed that well with these solid rocket motors. They don't. They they really don't have the kind of precision in both magnitude and direction. It doesn't have the controllability so to to keep to keep the speed down when these when these airbags hit the ground. And in fact, when when Pathfinder landed, it it landed with uh, falling from about 21 meters above the ground, some 60 some to some feet above the ground and then bounced and bounced for a kilometer. And it had a really pretty deep, we believe it had a pretty decent horizontal velocity because of the rockets being slightly tilted. And that thing just screamed over these rocks. And if you want to design something that's really safe, don't hit Mars that hard, go slow. And so the nice thing about this rocket propelled helicopter, it, just like a real helicopter that can lower delicate payloads, like, like the Sky Crane and Skiorsky helicopter designs can actually lower their payloads with incredible exquisite precision and and do it very slowly this can do the same thing and we took advantage of that same kind of architectural concepts to to lower the vehicle and once you do that 
then not only can you land your wheels, but you're going to have a safer landing because the energy is so much lower on impact than any other way of landing. And that makes a huge difference. So what do you think of uh, Curiosity's performance thus far, uh, performance of the instruments on Mars? Do you think they've lived up to, to their expectations, like past them? Well, I think they've all lived up to their expectations, plus some. We've had some issues with what he would with anything new. Um, uh, we've, we had a, a leak in our one of our instruments, the mass spectrometer. There is a, we brought a little bit of uh, a special fluid to help improve the sensitivity of the instrument, especially if we found organics. But that appeared to leak a little bit. And so now we, we, had, we, we had to deal with this self-caused uh, contamination of our instruments. So we had to figure out how, how to, do we clean this stuff up? Do we bake it out? I and mean, finally, the, the, the team came up with an approach to, to uh, both to, to precisely analyze, to remove that contamination from the data, as well as to physically remove the contamination by cooking the inside of the instrument. That's one, that's one example. But the other case is the other instruments have been done fantastically well. In fact, all of them have done really well and really have more than exceeded our expectation. The only one thing that I think that I that I, I think I will take some blame for is that we, we we have a pair of wind detectors, wind direction, magnitude, uh, as part of a meteorological experiment, uh, metrology experiment, uh, meteorology experiment. I mean, on the mast of the uh, the camera mast and. These were two, two, two sensors that were delivered from Spain. Fortunately, when we landed, the rocket engines kicked up enough little rocks that one of the little rocks came up and hit squarely hit one of our detectors. So one of those detectors was, was damaged. Very unfortunate. And, we, and, had I, and I had realized that there wasn't wind protection or uh, damage protection for them, I would have probably done something about it. But I did, uh, we all thought it was pointed in a different direction than it was. And so... Uh, there you go. We, we goofed. But we've done, uh, it's really been stunning. Um, we've had, like anything that's complicated, things, th- more, there's more things that could go wrong. And so we, we have had to deal with, with a reasonably large number of idiosyncratic behavior that we have had to fix and do workarounds for. All in all, it's pretty amazing. And it, especially since it has, in the very first drill sample that it collected on Mars, it was able to fully answer the question that Curiosity was built to answer, which is, billions of years ago, were the conditions on Mars such that life as we know it on this planet, could that life have survived? Now, it's not, it's not really asking the question, was there life or is there life? It just says, we answered a question we thought we could answer by measuring the chemical conditions of which the surface was laid down. We can deduce something about the habitability of Mars billions of years ago. And sure enough, we found a place, in a place called Yellowknife Bay, where we were truly driving on what looks like flagstone pavement. And looking straight down, he says, this is like, like flagstone. It's laid down by many, many layers of very fine clay that were deposited in water. And ultimately, by analysis, we were able to deduce that these phyllosilicate clays were created under wet, warm, not too salty, not too acidic, not too basic, and a uh, chemical balance that produced that had both uh, reducing and oxidizing minerals in the same sample. It was a place that's ideal for the survival of single cell, certain kinds of single cell organisms we have on this planet even today. And so, what the answer was? Yeah, Mars was habitable. 
Mars, really, three and a half billion years ago, there's almost no, if you'd taken the, these Earth cells and brought, brought them off there, they would have survived. They would have been happy. So the question is, why wouldn't there be life there? And so the next step is to go see if we can see, find signs in the layers of rock that are built up, that build up this fantastic mountain that we, we landed next to, Mount Sharp, and to see whether there might be captured and preserved organic residue from ancient life that might have been there uh, when Mars was an, indeed a habitable place by our standards. Well, it would be uh, fascinating to find out. Is this the, uh, the goal then of the uh, proposed Mars 2020 uh, rover? Well, the Mars 2020 rover, which will be using the, the same design, part of it is to, to save some money, but also it's a, it's a pretty solid design now. We've checked it out, and, and, I, and I have a lot of confidence in it. We'll, we'll use the same sky crane architecture. In fact, we're going to take the very same rover and simply modify it to do something different than MSL. So MSL... Um, is, you know, does this in situ science with these laboratory work by taking bits of rock that grinds and produces a very fine powder. And it takes a sample about the size of a baby aspirin and grinds it up very, very fine and then drops it off into each of the, each of the laboratories for analysis. What we're going to do in 2020 is a little different. We're going to, this is the first mission where we're going to actually take rock core samples and store them up go around from site to site to site collecting these, these uh, a two to three inch long thin pencil worth of cores and put them in a pile, put them in, a, uh, in containers and drop them off at Mars for a subsequent mission to come along, grab them up. And this would take years, by the way, of sample collections and sample analysis. But when, once you've gotten a good pile of them, a good collection of them, uh, a cache of them, we will go later on in a subsequent mission to go grab those caches, put them on a rocket to send them back, put them into orbit around Mars, where another orbiter would come along, pick it up, and bring it back to Earth. Uh, so we can do our first sample return mission. It would be the first time that anything is made, or anything uh, human-made will have made a round-trip journey from Earth to Mars and back. Well, I hope uh, still around to see it when that happens. This sounds fascinating. It sounds like a complex engineering problem. Well, it, it is. I, I think one, one of the key things, that, one of the things I'm working on today is is figuring out uh, how do I, now I know how to get a one-ton vehicle to Mars. We just did that. Uh, but, but that's about as big as a vehicle we could, today we can get to Mars without having to extend the entry descent landing technology to allow us to go larger. And I say a larger, I mean like, you know, 50% larger or even a factor of two larger. Um, and, we, and if we're, if we want to land a Rover uh, or a vehicle that can carry a Mars, a rocket that would take even a, even a grapefruit size spacecraft filled of sent Mars cores, rock cores into orbit, that, that space, that Rover is going to have to be pretty heavy to carry it around. So we need to be able to land something that's quite a bit heavier than Curiosity Rover. And, and that's what I'm doing now. And so we're testing new ways of slowing down because well, the biggest challenge for landing on Mars is that Mars has, it has an atmosphere, which means you have to deal with it. Uh, when you enter, you make, you've got to, you got to, uh, you can use the atmosphere to slow down to the extent it will let you. But if you don't do, deal with it, your spacecraft will melt if you don't have a heat shield. So you, you have to have a heat shield. You have to have a supersonic parachute to open up. And if you don't open up at pretty high speeds, you'll be on the ground before you know it. And so we're trying to figure out how to slow 
payloads down that are heavier uh, without hitting the ground first. And that means new, larger supersonic parachutes. I mean, it also means other kinds of decelerator devices like, we, like the one we tested in June this past summer over uh, the island of Kauai in Hawaii, where we launched a vehicle uh, to test out new decelerator systems that my team and I are working on now. And it seems to be working. Little by little, we're, trying, we're figuring this out and seeing, seeing if we can push the envelope in these technologies so that we can get a sample return mission to the surface of Mars. Well, I guess we'll look forward to reading about it in the next book then, huh? <laughs> That'd be cool. Maybe I will. <laughs> All right. Well, the new book is called Mars Rover Curiosity, an inside account from Curiosity's chief engineer. And our guest today was uh, Mr. Rob Manning. And uh, Mr. Manning, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much, Charles. Really appreciate your inviting me to come on. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.